0: So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io.
1: What's up, Hustlers? Welcome back. This is Andrew Morgan, founder of Marknology, your host today on Startup Hustle, covering all things e-commerce and Amazon. Today's episode is brought to you by Fullscale.io. you software team, affordably today's topic how to implement company culture shift michael welcome to the show
0: hey Andrew thanks for having me
1: yeah michael uh Michael Epstein of auto anything um I was telling him I heard him on a podcast another podcast and just absolutely loved kind of the you know the conversation what he had been doing with his company um and we're going to get into some of those details but it was just transparent some wins and I thought what better than to get him on the startup for um, you know, our listeners, this podcast is a podcast, five founders, four founders. Um, you know, so a lot of our audience are people running their own businesses or wanting to run their own businesses or, um, a key position in a business. So, um, I think it's the perfect body for today's conversation and, um, you know, really looking forward to just, uh, you know, picking your brain, getting some of your backstory as well, if we can, um, and going from there. So Sounds you're great. in San Diego, you're in San Diego now um but i would love honestly i usually just start out the episode getting to know um the guests a little bit and sharing some of that and so before we get into kind of um your introduction to auto anything um and company culture let's talk about michael just a little bit um you know how did you get the marketing i guess like what's some of that story how did you get into e-commerce um start as far back as you want to
0: Sure. It is a bit of a long story. I, it started over 20 years ago. Um, I started, I started a a e-commerce retailer when I was still in college, actually selling, uh, computer and video gaming accessories. It wasn't even necessarily something I was personally into, but I was always kind of the entrepreneurial type and saw an opportunity in the market and started it with one of my childhood friends. We grew that business, uh, started manufacturing our own product and creating our own brand, uh, went on to acquire a couple other, uh, couple other e-commerce retailers in a similar space, and then grew it over 13 years, which was longer than I ever even really imagined running that, that business, and sold it in 2013 to a private equity group, from there, I kind of got into this private equity operating and advisory work where I was working mm-hmm. with other funds, uh, met uh, my my partner and we started an agency partner, Drew Sanaki, who also had a similar backstory, started an e-commerce retailer, sold it to private equity, and then kind of got into this private equity consulting and operating work. So we we started this agency where we were advising Uh, other portfolio companies owned by private equity retail on growth and in some cases would do more on the diligence side, in some cases kind of advisory and consulting. And in other cases we actually went hands-on and did some operating work. So Mm -hmm. fast forward a couple of years and we have been working with a number of these funds. And one of those funds Uh, acquired auto anything from AutoZone as part of a corporate carve out. And AutoZone was looking to divest that business. uh, Fund in Los Angeles purchased it. And we were involved kind of on the diligence side. And then when um, my partner Drew had also was also acting as executive chairman uh, on the board, and then it became kind of apparent that it needed a real management change and leadership change. And so we came in and uh, decided to kind of start running that business. Drew him in as CEO. I came in as CMO, and you know we we really ended up enjoying going deep on a company again, and kind of really getting in there and having more kind of control over how the business operated and and the vision and direction that we wanted to take that company, and really getting in and taking action and and helping turn that business around. So um, we weren't, at the, at the time, we, we weren't sure kind of where, how long we were gonna be involved with that. But once it became clear that we were really enjoying it and that there was so much opportunity and upside to that business, then we, we really committed to that. And that's where I've been for the last uh, two and a half years or so.
1: I love it. So let correct me if I'm wrong, but you started in e-commerce if you had been doing that thirteen years and you exited in two thousand thirteen, did you start in the year two thousand? Yep, that's early. That's an early mover, for sure.
0: Yeah, um, I think my first website was on like Neva Merchant, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if any of your listeners even were alive, or, you know, or, or remember those days, that was, okay, uh, so that was old school.
1: I'm uh I'm thirty four, no. um, but I started with computers really early on so i i i opened up a little bit before we started about i grew up in africa yeah. um i was i was in congo in the year congo uh kinshasa congo in the year 2000 um i was hacking the satellite uh the internet provider to get more bandwidth nothing wrong just like essentially telling them we had more connections so they would give me more bandwidth and um i was like building software programs at the time where it was like you um You even almost had to be in these sites you shouldn't be going to, essentially, to get in the back end of them. You would, like, you know, compile about 100 images together, which would make, like, a rare file. you turn those rare files into a zip, and then you've got, like, software. It was, like, kind of, like, hacking or media sharing way back in the day. Um, But websites weren't even a thing, really, then. Like, I, I mean, I was... I had nothing to do in Congo, like after it got dark, um, you know, I'd done everything in a day up to that point. And so I spent a lot of time on the computer just getting comfortable with them, even at a young age, like I think I was 15. Um, and websites, I mean, they were there, but there was no trust. You were kind of had to be a hacker just to move around in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we started kind of early, early on to become... And uh, Was it
1: right out of school? Was it right out of school that you kind of just believed in it, or um, had you been working, like I guess, like a corporate job and started this on the side, or was it just like, no, we want to create a business, we're going e-commerce?
0: Yeah, so I was, I was in college. I was uh, probably, I think I was a junior or senior in college. I also was working uh, doing e-commerce for a, another consulting firm that was kind of like. So I was going to school and working and then because that wasn't enough, I decided to take on a side hustle because we just saw this opportunity to start a a site for ourselves. And I was always entrepreneurial. And so it's kind of inevitable that I was going to, going to start something and, um, yeah, that it started growing and taking off right about the time that the consulting firm I was working for was having kind of financial difficulties and, so when they closed their office, uh, it it actually was the greatest thing that could have happened because it forced me to go all in on on the business, and we ended up uh, you know really growing it uh, pretty quickly over and and over those thirteen years, and had a nice exit.
1: I love it. Um, I also love the name Auto Anything. Uh, I just love sharing a little bit of stories, like the connections that we kind of have. Um, I started helping brands on Amazon, uh, nine years ago, we've now become an Amazon advertising agency partner. Um, you know, worked with over 300 brands since then, but my very first startup, I moved to, um, Clearwater, Florida and I got a job off Craigslist. I had, I had in Kansas city, I was working at a knock, which is the network operations control position, which is at MasterCard global. And it was like a legit company. Um, you know, had some credibility, but I hated it. And so as soon as my first year contract was up and they went to hire me, I was like, I got to try something else. I'm like, if this is computer science, like I'm going to kill myself. Like, and so <laughs> it's like where, this is where I, I see people go to die is how I felt. And um, I'm a builder. I'm a creator. You know, I'm not just like waiting for stuff to break. And I moved to Florida. I was getting a lot of knock, um, you know, inquiries essentially, because once you've done it, you know, they need it. It's high demand. And I took a chance at a company called Hitch Anything. Okay. Um, maybe they were copying you back then. I don't know. I just uh, you know, there was these companies offer me the kind of job where you get Red Bulls and back massages, that kind of culture. Um, but I took a chance at the startup that was like, You want to be employee number three? We sell hitches online, um, you know, HitchAnything.com. I said yes. And that's when I started, that's when I fell in love with e-commerce. Um, and I've never looked back. It was just, um, it was never anything I, I really thought about being into, but once I tasted it, it was, uh, you know, there was no looking back. Um, and when I saw auto anything, I knew that there was times I looked at your site as a competitor kind of studying it. Um, you know, what are they doing? What are they doing with videos back then? um you know how are these these kind of big players in this space taking it to the next level and i know you weren't involved at that time um but i i very much was like you know studying auto anything as a competitor back then and um you know really digging into it so okay so we've we've caught up to when you've engaged with auto anything um another thing is it, so it's still not a company of autozone is that correct
0: so it's been no. is it still it's affiliated it. Completely separate now. They, uh, it was, um, it, it's no longer part of AutoZone at all, the the private equity fund.
1: Okay, got it. I just want to get my facts straight because I have a product that I've been working with for seven years on Amazon, a, a client of ours, of Marknology, um, that just got, we've been all Amazon focused for almost seven years. You know, we're doing. Um, you know, single digit millions, um, you know, somewhere around there. And uh, AutoZone just, we had a big contract with AutoZone over the last two years. Um, and so this is our first time we've said yes to brick and mortar. Um, and so getting our product um, into AutoZone has been kind of cool and a game changer for for this brand, because um, we've specifically been e-commerce. So there's just like a lot of synergies. And um, I've actually, I actually bought my first two brands um, in the last, probably three months, Um, some smaller e-commerce brands you did, um, you know, after you started in a similar space. So me as an agency, we typically work with other brands, kind of like yourself in this consultancy role um, where we're coming in as brands and helping them. Um, But since Thrust.io happened this last year, which they evaluated for a billion dollars, it's kind of changed the way private equity firms are looking at what we do. Um, you know, and I know you've been pioneering this space for a long time, so you know kind of how all that's playing, but, um, it's my first interactions with private equity and DCs and capital at a high level coming in kind of like crazy, trying to buy up brands, roll them up, um, and making what we do that much more valuable, you know, as it's in demand. So, um, forgive me, but I'm just like, you know, um, I'm I'm excited to be in this conversation because there's so many similarities, uh, kind of from someone that's a few years ahead of me in the space um, you know, and really doing a lot, um, for, for a company like auto anything and turning it around. Um, my first, my first, uh, corporate job was with, um, a 200 person company. I was e-commerce manager right after that startup for about two years. And that's where I really knew I wanted to go all in on Amazon. Um, but the culture was really old. Um, it was kind of like turning, a uh, you know, the Titanic, uh, in some ways. And so, Know, trying to take them from a catalog company to a digital company was very hard, especially from someone that was new as an e-commerce manager and not coming in with like a ton of credibility or experience to be able to pull those levers. Um, I really want to dig into that. So can, can, let's start with auto anything. I'm, I'm yeah. about to start the questions up. Um, you come into auto anything, you and your partner decide, Hey, it needs, they, we need to be hands on in this business to get it to like really turn around and, and become a winner. You guys make that decision. You're like, I'll take marketing, you take operations or, you know, everything else. Um, What was your first move?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting that you were, what you were describing just a moment ago about stepping into this kind of old school business that felt like the Titanic trying to turn it, turn that ship. And that's very much, I think, what we stepped into was this large, uh, this large business that had been part of an enormous business, AutoZone, um, and AutoZone being, a you know a a large leg a brick and mortar kind of old school business, um, and they had this they had this little digital you know to them it was considered little uh, digital business that they didn't really know how to they didn't really know. how, what type of culture it would take and how to operate this digital business. I think that's ultimately why they decided to divest it because they just couldn't really figure out how to, what to do with it. And so mm-hmm. when we stepped in, it was very much like that. It was it was a culture of a lot of bureaucracy, um, a lot of policies and procedures and an HR department that had a dozen people and 50 people on the engineering team and, you know, just tons of bloat throughout the organization, tons of bureaucracy and, and, and inefficiency. And so the first thing that we really had to do was kind of take stock of what we had. And, and by that, I mean, the talent and the people and the resources there. And Also, understand the systems and what Auto Anything's kind of secret sauce was and what we could leverage and to drive this thing into the future. So, I think first people, you know, and and they talk about it, you know, Jim Collins and good to great like it's get the right people on the bus first, right? So, Mm -hmm. and put them in there, get people on the bus and in the right spots. So, we really had to assess that team, um, assess who we thought. Was cons- was aligned with our vision for where we were trying to take this business, the type of culture we were trying to create—a much more progressive and entrepreneurial culture. Because, in, in the age of Amazon, you know, if you're just competing as a commodity dropship retailer with nothing special and nothing unique, I mean that that, that is not a long-term business model. Uh-huh. That's not even a medium-term business model. So, you know, we had. We we wanted to instill this, we wanted to bring back the entrepreneurial kind of passion and and culture to this business. And, and some people were going to be comfortable with that. And some people were comfortable with more status quo of saying, I just kind of want to come in, sit at my desk and, and do check off my work and and leave at the end of the day. So we really had to think about, had to kind of streamline the business first, right-size it for what it, where it was at. Um, uh determine kind of who we who we wanted to be on that bus with us and who we thought mm-hmm. kind of had that 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 fire and the entrepreneurial kind of drive to them, uh, and who was really talented there and um and you know, made some adjustments to to the team and put people in in different roles if we thought that they were were best suited there, kind of started implementing this culture, more of, of transparency and empowerment. I think again, when you're talking about working as part of this very large organization, people just, I think empowered can become kind of a cliche word, but it's kind of the best word I can, I can come up with in this case where people were just, they didn't have any decision-making authority yet. There were some people that were really smart and really talented. And our job was to like, let them know that. We trust you to do your job. We know you're talented. You're you're going to be better at it than we are. Like it's, we don't know. You know, we're not coming in as experts on how to do these these specific functions. Like our job is to identify who is really talented there and then support them and get out of their way so that they can execute the way that they know how and the way that they th- know is best for the business. So um, there was a lot of just kind of communicating that. A lot of over communicating when it came to transparency and the type of communication style that we wanted to have there. Um, You know, we would have all hand weekly or monthly all hands meetings where we would really run through the financials at a, in a very transparent and open manner. Like here's what the company is making. Here's what the company is not. Here's where money is going out. Here's what this is costing us. And that in itself was just a radical transformation for the business, but I think it was a good way to kind of hammer home what we were trying to create and the and the the, the dramatic shift that we were trying to um, to make at the business. Uh, and, and it it started becoming um, really apparent when we started making those kinds of of uh, of changes in, in in terms of what we were sharing, how we were communicating, the type of people that you know, we were either hiring or the type of people that we were not bringing along for the ride. And I think it it really took six to six to 12 months to really start turning that, that around and getting us cranking again to where it wasn't just stagnant and people, you know, just where people were really executing again. Um, yeah,
1: no, that's, that's great. That's great. I mean, I think, um, I think that's a lot easier said than done. And I'd like to know, um, you know, if you guys were at 150 or 200, you know, like how many how many people were on board with, you know, a new direction and how many, um, you know, did did you have to part ways with? Um, and if you don't wanna share that, that's okay. You know, I'd just like to know, you know, change is hard for people. Um, and when you come in, even if like the change is good, it's like, it's gonna be the, in their, int- their best interest for the change. Um, you know, I, I've got 15 people on my team and I try to implement a change, you know, and it can be, um, you know, it can be difficult, but I'm, I'm learning even in the set, we turned seven in August, even in the seven years I've been running Marknology, um, you know, you're either aligned or you're not right. Um, you either have employees that are aligned with the vision or, or they're not, um, what, you know, can you share some of that? Like, I guess like, you know, was it interviews? Were you guys in person? Did you have to move there? Was it all digital? Um, You know, how how did that kind of go down?
0: Sure. Uh, We were in person. um, And so there was, there was a significant uh, staffing adjustment made actually before I, um, before I stepped into the role, like right after the acquisition was made, the current CEO at the time had to make an adjustment right after the acquisition closed because it just, it was way overstaffed. And um, I think previous ownership was averse to uh, making those kinds of adjustments, even though no matter how much money it was costing them. Uh, So that kind of had to be made. So we stepped in also at a time where, you know, morale was challenged um, because there had just been a significant adjustment. They had gone through a management change at the same time. And that was, and that was difficult. But ultimately at one point that business was over, uh, was over 250 people. Um, and we took it down to around half of that, um, at the time okay. that I was in. Awesome.
1: Um, that's about what I expect. I think, um, you know, anytime you like, I know where I was at, um, you know, it, when you you use the word empowered, right? And I like to think that I am trying to empower my employees and almost to get anyone to really believe that, that, um, they're empowered to make decisions. Um, you almost need to force them to mess up, uh, even as an employee of yours, which is going to cost you as the owner, but you need them to mess up so that you have the opportunity to have their back and show them that that's okay. That's how we learn. Um, because that corporate culture, as I've found, is no one wants to take any risk. No one wants to stick their neck out. No one wants to do anything. I know when I was in, as an e-commerce manager, I went 150% in trying to grow this business. I did grow it um, by like, I think 1.3 million that year, specifically on like Amazon and e-commerce, which was not existent So like it's not existent then you you grow it by that. You know, it's like, you know, it was me, it was me, myself and I. Um, And so, you know, it was like bringing these ideas. I was so passionate about e-commerce. It was easy to just be like, oh, we should, you know, this is what we should be doing. Um, Our attribution uh, window for retargeting with this partner, like they're holding us for 30 days. It should be like three, you know, Um, just like coming in because I've been doing these research and making these moves. Um, And I found out that one, um, they just didn't want to listen at the time, you know, um, to like, you know, being kind of one of those, like I was just so passionate about e-commerce wasn't even about the money at that time i just wanted to do cool stuff and the second one was you know if you do come out and get results in a culture like that where you've got a mixed bag of of team members um a lot of the work just gets dumped on on the you know a few of those employees that are kind of crushing it and so what i learned quickly like anybody would um you know the more i do and the more results i get the more they dump on me to do and so it becomes one of these things where you're like i don't even want to bring this up uh because It's either if it doesn't work, I am my head's out. And if it does work, I'm just going to get a whole lot more work. And so it was just like this kind of I I really learned, I guess, in that job what I didn't want to create, you know, later as I became an entrepreneur myself. Um, And while I haven't had I haven't come into another situation or anything like that, of that size where I've had to come in and change the culture as someone that's gone from a team of three to 15 in two years. uh, It was super easy to have a culture when there were three of us. Now that they're 15, you're getting new people, and you're not getting all that one-on-one time to just sit with people and them to really understand your heart or your vision. Um, you know, it has to come out in different ways, and we and we need structure now. Like it's not the same, and so how do I implement structure, keep culture, still keeping people empowered? Um, is is really difficult?
0: Yeah, I think you. It's a really important point that you bring up, and that you know, especially for for a lot of your listeners who are. Entrepreneurial or have their own businesses. Like if you create a culture where you are where you're micromanaging everybody, uh, and everyone feels like they have to come to you for approval and everything, uh, and if they if they do make a mistake or if they do have something that you would do just slightly differently, that you're on top of them and correcting every little thing that they do, you know, you're that's going to be a significant impediment to your growth. Um, you really, are, really have to be able to hire good talent and then trust them to do their job and be supportive as a leader, not somebody that's going to be doing their work for them because you are going to become the bottleneck really quickly if you already aren't.
1: You're exactly right. And um,
0: I think that's why scaling
1: is so hard, you know, um, being able to trust people with your business when you're smaller. Um, to to care as much as you be aligned with you you know make decisions in the day to day with clients or whatever it might be customers um that would be the same decisions you would make or at least close to it with the right intent you know
0: yeah um, exactly
1: if you, got, if you guys were on site um you know you're essentially just over communicating culture 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 this is what we want like because you needed them to tell you things so that you could improve them essentially you needed the you know the grunts on the ground so to speak to be giving you feedback based on what's going on um and sometimes it's admitting some of their own mistakes or some areas that maybe they should have been at already um i know that's the case in my business you know um and and that i've been doing a lot of cross training um because i don't want anyone to feel like this isn't my job um you know with what we do and we're all kind of getting each other's backs if we kind of understand and respect each other's roles, you have a little bit more respect when you know those rules so something i'm trying to do right now is um you know cross training for the for those purposes um just because it's, you know, you want everybody kind of watching each other's back, but not in that way that's like, no one talks about this, you know, Um, because there's no way to improve anything if everyone's just like, you know, and sometimes it's just that they're working harder and they don't want you to know. They're working harder on something. Um, You know, sometimes I find out that they're not very confident in one area. And so they're like kind of masking that, um, you know, just by doing things the hard way or not asking for direction. And, um, you know, it results in a huge loss of productivity. Um, simply because someone's not feeling empowered enough to, you know, ask for help or, hey, can I take this course or, you know, um, yeah, all kinds of things. So culture, um, 100%. I know, I know it's important, especially as we get into this digital world. And, like, that means bringing young people in. That means just, like, you know, different things so that we can bridge that gap. You're, you're on site. Is the team all together in an office or are they all remote, uh, at least pre-pandemic?
0: so it was all in an office before uh before covid and we so another part of the culture was just we went to a remote friendly environment first so again the main thing is we expect to treat you like adults and that comes with kind of that empowerment and so we don't care if you're working part of the time from home, if it's not, as long as you're producing and, the, and the, the output and the outcomes that you're delivering are consistent with what you've committed to and what our expectations are for you. So the good thing was by having a remote friendly environment where a lot of people were spending a day or two working out of their house, as just was considered a perk, made that transition to fully remote really smooth when we had when we went fully remote back in March of last year, and we've been fully remote ever since. We are um, we are not yet ready to go back to, a, to everyone in the office, but we, we're, we kind of are, have been managing this remote first um, move really well. And so we're rethinking kind of how we would go back to a physical presence. There's a lot to be said for having face-to-face interaction. I think when we talk about culture again, These are things that we're still figuring out as an organization, how to maintain that culture, how to maintain um, the relationships that we have with the team uh, in a remote first environment. But there's also a lot of benefits to that. We've been able to hire throughout the, you know, we've expanded our hiring to nationwide. It's given us access to some great talent in places that we that would not have, you know, realistically, we would not have found that in San Diego Um, And so now everybody's pretty accustomed to this remote culture uh, and this remote environment that we've created. And it's uh, it's been working out really well. So now we have to figure out, again, kind of what the longer term plan looks like.
1: No, I get it. Um, You know, in Kansas City, it's been pretty lax, I guess, in regards to COVID standards. I mean, it's safe. It's just Kansas City. It's not L.A. It's not San Diego. It's not, you know, New York. Um, We're kind of out here in the middle. Um, And, you know, so we've still been, um, we also have a warehouse side of our business, a 3PL uh, fulfillment by Marknology. So um, we do ship goods, perishable goods. We have food brands that we work with. Um, So that was a reason to stay open in Kansas City as far as in office. Um, But there's so much more, I guess, collaboration and creativity. And there's so many things that can be Just, you know, transferred between a team um, from training, like this Amazon space, no one goes to school for this. So knowing how to position a brand on Amazon from photography to advertising to SEO to logistics and return rates to profitability and analysis to competitor analysis, like to train all these things, no one's going to school for that. Amazon's kind of this like one size, you know, you got to know it all a little bit. And so we need that. We need that in person. Um, you know, we went re, re, we went remote for a while, um, but that in person collaboration and just team building aspect of it, um, you know, is important. And while we could be a hundred percent remote, I felt like it's been important for us, you know, as a new team, to continue to like, you know, be together. Um, you know, so that's that's interesting to know how you guys have moved. And I like that remote first. I've heard digital first. I haven't heard remote first, so I like that. Um, Let's talk about the bottom line, though. You know, for me, um, I'm always talking to brands, um, and I, I usually stay away from brands that have investors because they're not long game enough for me. Um, mm-hmm. They want every they want everything yesterday, and that's just not how the world works. Um, so I do, I do work with investors. Don't get me wrong, to any of my listeners, but in general, you know, I feel like I work with a lot of CEOs and owners that have built a business themselves or that has been passed down, and they're running it um and you know those conversations are very much like when we're getting on amazon this is an investment you know there's an investment into understanding let's break all this stuff down where are our gaps you know and really we evaluate their business from the ground up from profitability and cost analysis to shipping to to everything to really be um you know profitable on amazon because that's that's what it's about at the end of the day um, but it's getting them to understand it's a long game, and I know that a culture change is very much a long game as well. So, you know, I'm I'm sure your investors had absolute trust in you, but I'm also pretty confident that they're like, okay, so how is this paying off? Um, you know, what kind of changes are we seeing at the company, and what? you know, if you, if you can go down that path a little bit, like as you started making these cultural changes at six months and things started taking in you're starting to get people, employees that are being transparent and leaders that are stepping up in departments and owning, um, you know, kind of their roles. When did that first start to make an impact on profitability?
0: Sure. I'd say, yeah, it's a good question. And fortunately our board and our investors are, um, generally patient and and certainly extremely supportive um certainly everyone's in this to make money but they they were extremely supportive and and when we i think they understood that in order for us to get to a place where we were executing efficiently and effectively we couldn't get there without changing the the corp the culture and the mindset and the team first Um, i think i think it was drucker that said culture-eats strategy for breakfast um, might have been. I might might be quoting somebody else, but I think it was Drucker, and and I think that's really true. Like all that we we could come in with all these grand ideas, and we did. I mean, we had a lot of ideas on day one for what we could do with this business. But if people are if there is not a culture of execution, uh, then it just doesn't matter. And so, I think in that kind of six month to year time frame, you could start to see things turning, um, in terms of, you know, productivity, uh, output, also revenue and, and profitability, you know, we were starting to really make inroads, um, as, as we started to feel like this, uh, like the level of execution in the business was changing dramatically. So it was just, it was directly reflected in the financials.
1: Were you guys trying to like you know bring on new brands and like growth in that time, or were you really trying to kind of lean up before you went into that growth mode?
0: Yeah, good question. So it really was about writing that ship first. You know, we 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 weren't necessarily in a position to start taking on more until we stabilized and started turning that around, and felt like we were in a position both financially and. Uh, in terms of resources and operationally to to start taking on new opportunities. And so um, really it was the beginning of uh, last year where we, we made our first acquisition, which was Morris 4x4, which was a Jeep-oriented online retailer of aftermarket accessories. And that was our first chance to really like go in and apply a lot of the same principles and philosophy that we had in in at Auto Anything into this other business that was also a private equity owned struggling online retailer and the impact there was very dramatic and very very rapid so we we took that business which was a pretty large business and doubled that inside of 12 months by mm. applying all of the same same principles again and, and philosophies to to that business, and that really I think also helped demonstrate to the board and our investors that that we can do this and that we can do that. We've got kind of the playbook now and can do that um, if we if we look at other acquisitions. And since then, we've been a little bit more aggressive in that respect. So we both acquired another company called uh, Wheelwell, which is more of a performance um, focuses more on the performance side and has a a really strong social community. And then internally we incubated uh, a company called overlander overlander overlander.com, which again, we could never have done, we could never have incubated this brand internally the way that we did and had the, the result and outcome with that brand, the way, you know, based on how it turned out in the old Environment, it just would never have happened. But so, now we're
1: on so I'm sorry, I, um, just a little delay. But so in the in the time of two years, 2018, I guess we're 2021, 20, three years, you acquired two and you know incubated or created your own brand. So three total.
0: There's four total now: Auto Anything, okay. Morris, Wheelwell, and Overlander. And we're uh, so we're, you, we're we're on the hunt for more.
1: Okay, so you didn't bring those under the name of auto anything you essentially use the same team across all three was that the case or do you have like auto anything i guess what i'm asking is like the auto anything team are they also the morris team also the overlander team etc
0: sure so that was um there are there's like a head of each site um but you know, going back to what you asked early on, like, what did we have at the business? One thing we had was an infrastructure and technology that really supported what is a pretty complex business, which is uh, drop shipping for the most part uh, after uh, aftermarket automotive products. There's a lot of complexity in that industry because you have a year make and model for every part. And so, there's 6 million SKUs that we have on, that we have across over 500 different vendors. That's a complex business to kind of manage, and we had mm-hmm. that infrastructure. We could take that, as well as the team and the talent that we had uh, at that time and apply that to these other businesses. We did need to bring on some additional resources and in some cases brought on who we thought were the key and strongest players at these different entities when we acquired them. But there was a lot of synergy that we could, where we could um, apply the marketing and merchandising, and operational talent that, and resources that we had at Auto Anything across multiple businesses, and that's been really effective for us.
1: Thank you, thank you for that insight. It's really helpful. Um, you know, it's kind of how I've been uh, Marknology's, you know, five-year plan or or whatever is to acquire more businesses or um, incubate them. I'm I'm incubating one right now and acquired two small ones. Um, and, you know, we're built up, we work with about 50 brands. Uh, we have about 50 brands, you know, on a monthly basis that we're working with, uh, managing their their Amazon, their digital retail shelf. Um, but the goal is to essentially, you know, have my same team that I'm building essentially act as the construction crew, you know, and all things from photography to SEO to video to logistics um, and just wrap them right into the same team. We essentially treat them like a client. Um, even if they're exactly. our own brands. And so Marknology will continue to own some and then, you know, work as an agency alongside some of the others. So, um, you know, that's very helpful and insightful to me. So far, nothing that I've um, bought has, you know, needed to keep anyone on board. You know, they were smaller operations. So it's more so just like, you know, rolling it into what we're doing. Um, but that's really interesting. And I think that, you know, it, it's it's been the last seven years I've been learning with other brands you know, what's the template? Well, you know, how does how does Amazon's algorithm work? How do we optimize it as? Now that that's the case, it's even, the next phase is, okay, holistic e-commerce, how does Amazon or the marketplaces, web and social kind of all connect and bring them all together? And you really need a team that's on board with that. If you have a Facebook Facebook ad guy, uh that's not going to work well with amazon attribution or understand like you know what i'm trying to do with the ads you know when i'm working with a brand and they connect me with an outside partner we're not aligned um because they want to do things their way it's really hurting the brand you know so i stress that from the very beginning that it's like look we work on amazon but there's so much that we do here on amazon that also affects your website, that can also affect your social media that can affect everything else as far as branding um we have to be aligned. And I can see why once you got that culture right, as you took on another one, they could then by osmosis, you know, help that team with the next culture and um, so on. So that's very insightful, especially like at a high level, right? When that's happening at a high level with a big business. Um, and like I said, I started in, um, I started in automotive parts So that year, make, model. Um, that is very challenging. I was legitimately, this is how we, I started two plus two, I was in Mopar. I mean, we made a deal with Mopar, like some Do- Chrysler Dodge Jeep dealership to come in and sit in their back parts aisle. And I was taking photos of every single part, uh, because these didn't exist for the web. Um, you know, I was taking it out of the package. I had a little portable white background setup. I was taking a photo, you know, onto the next one. Um, you know, creating these combo kits where got, I'm sure you sell hitches on out of anything. So you've got sequin curtain, um, you know, that drop shipping model that we're all talking about. Um, and it's at a very, very high level, the plugins and relationship management, you have to go to be able to even work in that space is something that you just almost have to have done it to know. So it makes a lot of sense. Why, um, your guys' systems can directly correlate regardless if it's wheels that you're selling, you know, bolts and, Um, or you're selling trailer tonneau covers or whatever. They almost all have a year make model. Um, I actually had the the craziest thought I'm in Costa Rica right now. And I've been seeing all these vehicles that are like vehicles that we don't have in the U S you know, whether it's Toyota or Nissan or Mitsubishi, they have these different models for overseas. Um, and just thinking about e-commerce internationally, I'm like, I don't know who is selling to any of these people. Um you know, because I I was kind of in that space early on. Automotive still has a long way to go in my opinion in regards to e-commerce, um, because it's just so complicated. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a wide open wide open market uh internationally for all these, you know, these all these dealers that no one no one like auto anything or um has hit yet. So because the, the combinations are endless. If you have six million SKUs, the number of SKUs that those could even combine with or create kits with or variation sets. Uh, Would be a massive undertaking.
0: Yeah, it was it was a big eye opener to step into that industry from kind of any other e-commerce business that I had dealt with.
1: You know, you you said you started in gaming, and like the gaming space has just absolutely exploded. Um, A little bit different space than automotive.
0: Yeah, I mean, but for me, it was always the it was always kind of the business the business aspect of it. I just, um, it didn't matter at all. The industry almost didn't matter to me. I just really, and, and really the, the fundamental, um, the fundamental principles of e-commerce don't vary a whole lot from industry to industry, like best practices right. in an email campaign, in how you manage kind of user experience and paid and things like that. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot that's transferable no matter what industry you're in if you really know the those well.
1: You're exactly right. Um, you know, when I'm talking to brands. I'm letting them know what we do. I'm like, we're we're helping you with your branding. We're helping you tell your story on Amazon. Um, but we're not like a branding agency. We're not like an advertising agency. We're not like any agency you've worked with before. We're taking the same principles that exist in e-commerce. We're just making them work on Amazon. You know, from SEO to video storytelling to retargeting to Email marketing to all of it, um, and it really can is a challenge. Um, you know, I think I was almost too early trying to work in a space where we were helping brands understand Amazon. There just wasn't a lot of buy-in when I first started. Um, but yes yeah, that education piece of like, I don't need to just be so niche that I just do cosmetics and skincare. I just do supplements. Or I just do automotive because this is what our agency is known for. It's actually been what have we learned across the three hundred brands we've worked with, and what do they have in common? And what did the losing brands or the losing projects I, I worked on have in common? Um, you know, kind of taking those results and being like, this is a strong e-commerce plan regardless of what you know business you are. Um, and I think that's what's so exciting is I don't have to be a genius to help a brand, right? Um, I don't have to come up with some innovative outside the box insane creative idea. Um, it's more so like these are the standard principles of e-commerce and if we do them correctly, um, you know, we'll, we'll see results. So sorry I went on a little bit of a tangent there. Um but realizing that, you know, regardless of industry, it's it's uh, you know, it's very much the same.
0: Yep. Definitely.
1: So what's next what's next for for you and what's next for Auto anything um, you know, coming out of the pandemic year, um, you know, what do you guys have in the
0: store? Uh well, we in we one of the acquisitions Wheel well was pretty recent. It was the very end of last year. We have a lot okay. of, there's a lot that we think we can do with that. And it has this really neat social community where uh, users can upload information on their builds, which is big in automotive. So pictures mm-hmm. and all the products and everything that went into building their their vehicles. And then those can become shoppable. And of course, other users can browse and interact with with that content um so we really think that that's there's a ton that's of really cool uh and overlander again is another brand that that is new launched around black friday of last year and um a lot of a lot of upside it's really neat market it's this more extreme vehicle adventure market where you're taking these vehicles out off the grid for days or weeks at a time it's a really neat um, really need business. And so obviously growing them, continue to grow Auto Anything and Morris, um, seeing a lot of good growth. I think we're benefiting. We're fortunate to benefit to an extent from um, the pandemic where both the shift to e-commerce, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have seen similar uh, similar impact, as well as just automotive in general, has been an industry where people are spending it's a it's a hobby and it's a project and people can spend their time on it particularly when they were when they were at home so mm-hmm. uh, we've benefited and we're trying to continue to capitalize on that and continue to grow these businesses and then continue to look for other acquisition opportunities um, because we think um, and we've kind of built this this playbook and this infrastructure now and and the talent that can support that continued growth but we're also looking to introduce. Our own products as well. So private label. Again, if um, if a lot of your listeners are are reselling a lot of product, um, you know, being able to develop your own product, bring that to market, have greater margins and more control over that brand is really important and something that's going to allow you to be, you know, more competitive long term when other pro- when when retail is being consolidated among some of the top sites like Amazon.
1: Yeah, I love it. Um, you know, and there's Amazon is uh, there's a lot of pros and cons, right? Um, I think the you know for the website owners, the e-commerce owners, like it's a necessary evil. It's always going to be there. It's, you know, really, how do you want to be positioned on that marketplace? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think the more you can step back and be like, this is what I want for my business, and instead you say, where are my customers? And I'm going to be there uh, is the better kind of mindset to go and just provide that experience for them um i personally have launched probably half a dozen private label brands you know on amazon some of them well over a million a year you know I've, I've seen people retire um from their day jobs of 20 years as a gm somewhere and you know just kind of go on and see these these visions come to life i'm also a jeep owner a rubicon i've got a rubicon i absolutely love it so um i might have to check those out myself uh it's been the jeep and the kayak has been my savior during the pandemic year just getting a chance to you know kind of go out so i 100 percent know what you're talking about and um i'm also like been having a lot of fun with the with atvs and stuff out here in costa rica so i'm your i'm your prime customer i think uh you know um engaging out here in that kind of stuff but no absolutely loved it i love where you guys are going i'm gonna continue to follow those projects and the one where Um, you can have shoppable user submitted content is, is really forward. I think that's, um, you know, it's really incredible. I'm gonna have to follow along just to kind of see how that model works out. And I think, um, the first podcast I came across, um, where I was introduced to you and was like, I got to get this guy on the show. You guys were talking about personalization and, and, and the importance of email marketing. Um, you know, when did you come across, when did you really start believing, like going all in, like you said earlier in personalization and knowing that that was something that was going to be part of your strategy?
0: Yeah, I think that it was, I knew that it was going to be part of the strategy early on, but it's, you know, it, it's step-by-step process, right? You got to, you gotta crawl before you walk, before you run. And so we had to lay the foundation of, kind of implementing a system that would, that had the capabilities of tracking user user behavior and the, and the transactional data and and those attributes so that we could get better at segmentation and then you just start to build these automations and triggers and workflows over time and get more and more sophisticated and granular over time so of course you can start with a win-back sequence or a post-purchase sequence or an upsell, something like that. But then how do you continue to progress and get more and more granular and personalized to say, I know that you bought this product and it's your second purchase. So we're going to, we're going to have a a specific message for you, or I know that you drive a a 2017 Ford F-150. And so we can personalize the content and, the messaging and the the product recommendations that are made to that person. And I, and then you can do that across touch points. So once you have that first party data in some sort of CRM or even an ESP that can act almost as a CRM, you can then uh, push that, that those audiences across different touch points. You can create a Facebook custom audience to target those people and mirror the messaging that you're providing an email. You can do SMS messaging and and use those same, the same segments and attributes to target people with that personalized messaging. So I think that in my mind, the vision is really to, to create a personalized shopper experience at scale, um, especially in our industry where it's pretty sophisticated in terms of you wanna be very sure you're purchasing the right part. You don't wanna get mm-hmm. stuck accidentally purchasing the wrong thing. Some of these things are very expensive, 500 or $1,000 parts. So you want that personal experience. We do a ton of volume through our contact center relative to to typical e-commerce retailers that might do a few percent or 5% of their revenue through call or chat. We do a lot more than that because people want that human touch. If we can create that sort of experience at scale and make it feel like we're delivering a very personalized experience, we understand you, we know what you're looking for, and we know how to help you. And be proactive about that. I think that's a way that that we can really cultivate loyalty and brand, um, you know, brand affinity in a way that, you know, even Amazon who certainly can, can do it, but they're not, uh, they're not really doing it in that way. Like they're, they're not specialists in a particular market that way. And, and if we're going to be, we're going to be kind of selling products that you can buy on Amazon, we have to figure out a different and unique way of doing it that adds value to the customer experience in a way that they're not going to find just buying it somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I think uh, let's talk about that just for a second as we wrap up, like what you're doing with that customer care, that customer support is building trust. They believe, they trust that they're going to get the right part. It's going to be what they expect. It's going to be on time. And that's what Amazon has that all the other e-commerce sites don't have. In my, in my opinion, is that trust factor. Um, Amazon gained the trust of e-commerce whenever they started delivering stuff in two days or no hassle returns. They're like, look, I'm going to be taken care of by Amazon. Um, now it's the individual sellers within Amazon, if anyone actually knows that. you know, It's not just Amazon themselves, like it started. Now it's the, the three Ps. But that's what you're doing, essentially, when um, you're putting a lot of focus on that, you know, that customer care piece of it. Um, and if you want to compete with the Amazons, you can't just, sit and moan and be like, oh, my God, Amazon, 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 Um, you got to do something about it. And so if you want people to come in your store, if you want people to shop with you and stay loyal, um, you got to make their experience better. You know, like in the same way, Amazon can be a hot mess of a catalog. You know, you've got before the three P sellers start coming along, cleaning all this data up. The brands have to care about it. to hire someone probably like Marknology or someone internal to come in and like, okay, let's get this information right. Let's, you know, returns can destroy a business. Um, simply by overselling instead of educating or, you know, things like that. There's countless businesses we've came across where um, the return issues was our main. It wasn't even about the product quality. It was just they're getting the wrong product. And so, um, you know, how do you ensure they're getting the right product? How do you make them feel really great? You know, pat them on the back like you've got the right thing. I know I personally, in a brick and mortar experience, um, I love going to stores where they help me um that's why i'm going to brick and mortar as an e-commerce guy otherwise i buy it online so i'm in there uh to talk to someone to have them make me feel great about my purchase i want to ask them instead of doing my research i want to say hey what's the difference in this one and this one and i want them to be able to tell me um you know not that i'm testing them but like that's that's the warm fuzzy feeling i get for going into a brick and mortar um and so business is the same across the board and so to me whether it's your website your social engagement, um, if that's you know that's done in the same way, um, your brick and mortar, your website, whatever it is, wherever someone comes in contact with your brand, you have to have that same quality, um, you know, and that's what we try to do for brands on Amazon, um, you know, where it, a lot of times it's a different customer. I think the automotive customer is um, almost a completely different customer altogether because they are so accustomed to walking into the auto zone, telling the guy behind the counter what car they have. And what wipers they need to fit or, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, and so, and someone pulls out a catalog, looks up the part number and it's like, this is the part you need. Um, so trying to get that same experience in a more efficient, you know, way is I think is super incredible. And I think um, the personalization piece is something that to anyone listening, like founders or business owners on the web can do in a way that you can't do on Amazon yet. And that is a way to, to really stand apart and, and create some, you know, reach some value within your site to have people coming there. To, the reason they're not going to Amazon, um, you know, Marknology helps with personalization, uh, in regards to like, uh, we're selling, you know, Ford F-150, um, you know, running, uh, running board lights or something like that. You know, we can show up on those pages, say, this is frequently bought with this. and You have a Ford F-150, and, but like 99% of brands are not doing that, you know? So, um, in a time where time becomes the most important thing, like, you know, personalizing, uh, making people feel like they're, uh, you know, really important, uh, as customers, um, it's just awesome. And that's really where, you know, I, I, heard your kind of hour dip and I'm giving them a shout out to what's the wave break podcast, but you guys are really going into SMS and, and personalization. Um, and I really feel like that's the future it's been out for a while, but not at, scale across lots of different brands. Um, And so I think that's really the future uh, from Hulu to Netflix, to voice, uh, to voice searching, to the Alexa. Um, You know, it's all coming down to personalization and and data at the core of that. How much data are you getting and what are you doing with it?
0: Yeah. And there's, and you alluded to it before as well, like just getting the surprise and delight factor uh, is not, is not something that you're going to like buying from Amazon is super efficient, super easy. You're not going to beat them on, on creating a a more frictionless experience in that, but you're, but buying from Amazon, isn't necessarily fun. Like people aren't like, awesome to buy from Amazon. You don't get a surprise and delight factor. And if you can create that um, through your brand and through those touch points, that's something that's going to again, cultivate a lot of affinity and loyalty and catch people's attention. Like we're using, uh, handwritten postcards, uh, as a way to do that now, which, you know, again, you talk about the different touch points from SMS and voice search and all the different things. Like, uh, we're using uh handwrite.io, which allows you to automate creating handwritten postcards at scale. Right. And you could do that and you could send that to your customers with a personalized thank you note to where it's written. It's actually written by robots. Uh, but it looks like handwritten. It's using AI to to create realistic handwriting, like pen to paper on a note card. And um, it's it's another thing that you know, in a, in an age where your inbox is now the cluttered thing, and your actual mailbox is where is not cluttered. That's something that comes through and really catches that customer's attention and makes them uh, and gives them that surprise and delight factor in a way that's gonna make them really loyal and brand advocates.
1: Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Handwrite.io, um, that's a freebie for everybody listening. That's um, a way to really take it to the next level, direct mail. And I think like all things old, bringing them new is, is innovation at its best. Um, and I know that I now as a business owner get even more mail that's just either junk or my email inbox is just straight anxiety sometimes. Um, you know, so getting a handwritten note or a hand, you know, um, you know, that wow factor, it really stands out. Um, and it's a great way to go and a great way to, to even like, you know, even from Amazon, um, you know, collecting customer data, let's say you're selling car parts on Amazon, you have them go to your website to register their warranties on your private label brand, because that's how you collect their email and officially register them. And then following that up with Um, you know, a direct mail touch, because now that's possible because you're collecting customer data is really like what we're talking about when we say like holistic, you know, where it's from, you know, end to end and really owning the customer. Michael, I could go on all day. Um, You know, we're wrapping out in an hour. Like uh, you've been sharing gold. Thank you so much for your time. Before we before we sign off, like, um, you know, where can people reach you? Um, You know, if they do have a brand they're trying to sell or they want to, you know, just connect with you and continue to follow some of the brands you guys are doing. I'm going to have it in the show notes, but, uh, just for everybody listening in their car, um, you know, what's the best way to contact you or connect with you?
0: Um, probably LinkedIn is the best way to to reach me. So just Michael Epstein, what's my LinkedIn, M M Epstein one, I think I'll give you, you can put it in the show notes. Um, so connect with me, always happy to talk e-commerce. If you got something really cool in automotive, happy to pass that along to our merchandising team to take a look at. We always like finding new and interesting stuff. Um, But yeah, hit me up anytime.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Before we sign off once again, thanks to our sponsor for today's episode, FullScale.io, helping you build software teams quickly and affordably. Michael, if you're looking to build a team as you acquire brands ongoing, FullScale.io is a great place to start um, as your workforce is getting more um you know nationwide international um they've been a great resource for me to plug into my team as needed um and help us build out so michael thanks again for being on the show hustlers i'll see you next time
0: thanks for having me andrew